My guest today is a partner and vice president with Brand Ambassador. Here's just a small selection of what people he's worked with say about him. I rarely come across a talent who stands out like Matt. He has helped coach me into being a better salesperson. Matt has this amazing ability to focus our sales team on what really matters, to ensure we are constantly overachieving against our targets. Matt is a visionary business leader with a strong interpersonal skill set and a drive to succeed. His positive approach, dedication and integrity make working with him a pleasure. Matthew Harris, you're very welcome to the podcast. Good spear. They're expensive, those reviews, I'll tell you. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they cost, cost a fortune. <laughs> um, tell me, Matt, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about Brand Ambassador as a, as, as, as a concept, and we'll talk about that. But before we do that, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what sort of experience that was. Yeah, sure. I guess um, when I look back and think, where did I grow up? There's, there's a few places. I've moved around a fair bit. Um, the, the place where I kind of call home or the place I did my sort of formative growing was Worcester. So Worcestershire, um, beautiful town, um, beautiful cathedral. Uh, we moved there when I was around eight years old and I left when I was about 18. So that really key, important phase in life, that was where I sort of lived. And uh, yeah, I went from Worcester to university in Nottingham, had four amazing years studying business there. And then uh, left Nottingham and went to went back to move with the parents who had moved from Worcester to Northampton. So I went to start a new life in Northampton from uh, my parents' house. And um, yeah, so I moved around a fair bit. But I guess I'd say I'm from Worcester is where I kind of grew up. Uh, it's a lovely part of the country. I worked there for a couple of years in, in Istel, AT&T it was, AT&T Istel. And it was just outside Redditch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so nice part. And and you mentioned Nottingham. Was that the uh, Nottingham City University or Nottingham University? It, it was it was Nottingham Trent. So I always leave that little detail out. That's, that's doing a disservice to Trent. It's a great university. And... No, I, 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 I said Nottingham City University. I, it is Trent, you're right. I went there. I did, I did a two-year evening diploma in business studies back in the late 80s. And it was called Nottingham Polytechnic at the time. That's right, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. After my stint in Staffordshire uh, University, which at the time was called North Staffs Poly. So we have the same thing here. We changed a lot of our Absolutely. regional technical colleges into, into degrees. Uh, yeah. Interesting. All right. So tell me a little bit then about what you studied and what drew you to it. Yeah. So... I picked business studies. Uh, I picked it with no intention of ever getting into the business or corporate world. Uh, my passion ever since a little kid has been aviation and, and airplanes. I think a lot of a lot of young lads go through that phase uh, and uh, I just never grew out of it. I remember I remember vividly, I was about six years old, uh, watching TV and this ad came on the TV for a magazine called Takeoff. And uh, you could you collect the magazine. It's all about fast jets and like military aircraft. And every week you get another part of the Airfix model. So uh, I thought, oh my gosh, we've got to get I've got to get into this. And I remember turning to my dad as like six years old and saying, like, can we go buy that right now? And I mean, to his credit, we, we ten minutes later we're in the car going to the news agent to go and grab a hold of it. And I remember looking at the front cover and just having that sort of like connections. Like, this is what I want to do. Um, and I just, I just never grew out of it. Uh, when I was 13, I joined the Air Cadets um, and had sort of four or five wonderful years there. When I went to university, I joined the University Air Squadron where 
I learned how to fly and learned how to be an officer. And my vision was always, I'm going to, I'm going to be in the Air Force. I'm going to be a, an Air Force pilot. I'm going to be Maverick in Top Gun and I'm going to live that life. And, um, I remember I went to the Air Force before university and said, look, I want to, I want to come join up. Let's get this thing going. And they said, look, Matt, go to university, get a degree, become more well-rounded. We'll, we'll, we'll do the whole university air squadron thing while you're there. So I guess I picked Nottingham and I picked business because I thought business is fairly common sense. Um, I studied it at A-level and enjoyed it. And I thought this is a, this is a degree which I can coast through to a level and focus on what I wanted to do long-term, which was the flying. So that's kind of how I picked Nottingham, picked my degree. It was all driven by this sort of desire to, uh, to become a pilot, essentially. Okay, so, but you, you didn't. Did you, I mean, you said you went the, the full hog on the pilot. Yeah, so my, my so goal, the, the whole... Why are you not in the sky right now? That's what I'm, uh, I'm interested in. That's a good question, yeah. So um, I, I had one of those events in life where your life completely forks and goes a different direction. And there's, there's two versions of the story, Paul. There's the, there's the fake version, which saves my face, and there's the slightly more embarrassing but truthful version. And um, it's been a long nobody time. Listen, nobody listens to the podcast, Matt, at all. <laughs> just, you, just you and me. We're in safe hands. No, I mean, I, I was young. I, uh, I remember I was, I think it was year three or four of, uh, of my degree, and we were at an actual RAF ball. Um, it was one of the sort of annual events and uh, I'd had a drink, we'd had a meal. I'd known for a girlfriend at the time and I decided to get in the car and go and try and rectify this. Uh, I got stopped by the police and blew over the limit and that sort of uh, completely put the brakes on my progression to go and become an air, a, a pilot in the Air Force. I remember it's a tricky time. I look back now and I've got a sort of smile on my face, but that's because I've come out the other end of it. But at the time, it's one of those moments where you look back and think, oh my gosh, that was so, that was life-changing as an 18, 19-year-old. I remember I sat down with our CO, our uh, commanding officer of our squadron, and he said, look, Matt, we, you can't continue where you are. Um, and he said to me something like, uh, "You from this event, you're either going to spiral downwards and it's going to define you, or you can spiral upwards and it can define you, but you get to pick. And the, they, the words never left me. I remember at the time thinking, like, yeah, okay, it's just an empty phrase that someone says to help someone in a bad time, but... It really did stick with me. So that kind of put a blocker on the flying, or at least military flying. And then my focus shifted from if I can't be Maverick, I'll go. I'll go fly for someone like Virgin or BA and be an airline pilot. You know, it's the. I'd say it's second best. That's doing a disservice to people who pursued that career. But it's still flying. It's still what I wanted. Um, and I applied for four of the best schools globally. There are schools out there where you can apply, and they take you from zero to placed with airline. And it's like the most efficient way to do it. There are other ways to do it, but. You can do that in 18 months. It's a very intense, efficient way to get where you want to go. Um, and I was lucky enough to get offered a place at one of the best down in New Zealand. And I was absolutely psyched to get it. When I got the offer, I couldn't believe it. And then the reality kicked in that these things need paying for. Uh, and to do one of these courses is, it's around, back then it was 80K to do the course. It's probably more nowadays. But hey, as a 20-year-old just finishing university, I didn't have 80K. And my parents offered to uh, put a loan up against the house. And I remember having all these moments of like clarity of like, this is a bad idea. Like the industry is on its knees. Um, and there's so many horror stories of young guys coming out the other end of this system with these licenses to be a pilot, but there aren't enough jobs and they've got these huge loans to pay back. So I had one of these moments where I was like, right, I've been studying business, so specifically entrepreneurship. Like I've done four years on how to start a business and how to get things going. So I remember at sort of two in the morning, I was laying in bed and had one of those kind of like wide awake moments 
how do I solve this puzzle? And I came up with a business idea and I remember writing the beginnings of my business plan at two in the morning um, with this vision for I'm going to start a business and in a year's time, I'll either buy my own airline or at least I'll pay for my own training. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of why I'm not sat in a 747 right now. Um, and that, that journey led me on a different path. That seems like a, a massive price to pay for a, uh, a kind of a rush of blood to the head. That, yeah. It does. I mean, my, my impression of military is that people have made mistakes and they'll get a rap on the knuckles, but I, I, I'm aware of people who have committed far worse and it's not a crime, man. it's stupid, but it's not a crime, and you were young. Was there no forgiveness? Was there no yellow card system that said, look, you made a mistake, if it happens again, you're gone? Yeah, no, I guess is the short answer. I think technically, I mean, technically it was a crime. You know, I got, I got, I got trialed with, um, with, um, with drink driving. I lost my license for 12 months, had a fine. Um, and I think because of that, the technicalities, if you have that on your record... Um, there is a there. You need to wait till that's no longer on your record before you can reapply. And I mean, right. here's a cruel twist of fate, right? The, uh, the, it, the the expiry period for that to be off my record. When that was off my record, I was I think like two or three months over the age limit to apply for a pilot. So if it happened slightly sooner, I'd have been able to reapply and you know, continue that path. But it was it was like the universe was just slamming that door, saying, "Nope, that's not the door." Um, Maybe that's a bit of a philosophical way to look at it, but um, that's kind of how I look back now. And I think, my, looking at my personal personality profile where I am now, I'm not convinced I would have necessarily been that happy doing the same thing all day every day. Um, you know, it would have led me on a very different path. You know, I'm married with three kids. I, I love my job. I love my, what I'm doing. Uh, I feel I'm in a good position in life. And you know, I think I got to look back and think it was a positive overall. It shows a remarkable um, character to be able to be so uh, sanguine and philosophical about the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure maybe at the time you had your moments, you had your kind of cry yourself to sleep moments, but uh, to be able to, as, as your CEO said, you're either going to spiral down or spiral up. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> what's going through my head now is a CEO standing there, Matt, you're either going to spiral down or spiral up, but it won't be in one of our planes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said after college you had this idea for a business. What was that and how did that business go? Because I would imagine most people's first business uh, is, is their learning ground. I think when I look back at and I summarize the four year experience of starting a business, that is how, that is the only way I can look at it. It was a complete learning grounds. And I look back and I mean, there are moments I'm thinking like, what was I doing? Like I made all of the classic mistakes of a first time entrepreneur. Um, but it's, it's in those mistakes you learn, you know, I learned so much in those four years. And so the, the idea was um, I lost my iPhone in a taxi and what really, annoyed me was the fact that someone's going to get into that taxi they're going to sit next to if not on my phone and they're going to look at it and it's completely dead because your phone's always dead when you're at 2 a.m when you've been on a night out um and there's no way they can get open it because it's now got a pin lock they don't know it's mine and i was thinking in my head like how many other people have that experience and i believed there needs to be something physical on the phone to tell the person who's found it 
that's mine. I'd like it back. So I came up with this idea of what if we could mark people's technology with that message of cash reward for return, um, have a phone number and a website and a unique serial ID so I can link it in a database and sustain um, anonymity from the, the actual owner. So that was kind of the beginning of the idea. And um, yeah, we built a business. It was called Tagback. Um, and the idea was we, we put these little stickers on your mobile devices. Um, I say I say little sticker. There was actually a, a fair bit of sort of R&D in it. We worked with 3M to on this like way to reverse print on a on a substrate and the point is it wasn't just a normal sticker it looked quite cool it was see-through uh there was like silver text so it would look like the old text on the back of the iphone where it said like made in california so it wouldn't be too intrusive on the phone but it would be enable the owner to have a physical way of marking it so we launched this concept we built a website a database we got those stickers made up and uh, got some seed funding uh and then exploring where the opportunity was, it became very apparent that there was a real opportunity with insurance. So like so many people are losing their phones, making claims. And if I could say to an insurer, give all of your policyholders this, and then for every 10 phones that are lost, we'll recover five. Um, and uh, that's going to save you some bottom line, right? And um, so that was the play. We, we did a few deals with some really big insurers at the time when you'd buy a policy and in the post would be our sticker. And they'd say, activate this on your device. And um, and that was it. That got us off to the races and got everything moving. Um, and then in around year three, um, the it felt like overnight the industry moved from being paper based to all digital. So instead of receiving physical documents, you're getting emails now, which is fantastic for the environment. It's fantastic for for the consumer. But what it meant is we could no longer hijack their stamp with their envelope to get our product to your hands. So we would have to cover the cost of the stamp. And when we're talking like 400,000 tags a month, that's a lot of stamps. And the, the way that the economics of the model worked out is it wasn't viable. Um, so we had to pivot and we did another, another raise. It wasn't, wasn't a lot, but we raised a bit more money to buy us a bit more runway. And we tried to position it as more of a, like a retail play. Like you go into car phone warehouse and you buy your case, you buy your stack, sticker and you register it online and boom. But yeah, it just never really got the traction and momentum. And remember at this point, I'm, I'm doing this because I want to go flying. I'm not doing this necessarily to be a millionaire. And every every year, every week, I'm not where I want to be. I'm, I feel like I'm wasting time. So it got to year four of scrapping for all the ups and downs you do when you're a young entrepreneur, making mistakes and learning from them. And I had this moment where I was like, I'm, I'm done now. I need, I need to move on. I need to accelerate this and get going. And I remember... Um, it was my dad's 60th birthday. We went for a beer at, a, at, a, at an airfield called Sywell in Northamptonshire, and we're looking at planes and doing that bit. And my dad said to me, like, look, like, you're, you've got pretty good at the sales and marketing side. Why don't you just go do that for a more established company where you can take commission? And, hey, you know what? With a year of good performance, you'd be able to pay for the training. So that became the new plan. And um, I had an awkward moment with the shareholders and other investors and said, like, guys, I, I'm burnt out here. Like, uh I don't know where we go from here and our original vision has changed and I'm going to make a change. And to their credit, they were all fantastic about it. They were all, um, you know, angel investors who, you know, not institutional investors. They're all, you know, partly doing it because they wanted to see a young guy develop. And so that, that set me on another phase. I, uh, I wound the business down and uh, went to London, joined a SaaS Internet of Things startup in their enterprise sales team. And uh, that began a new era for me. <laughs> And what was that like going into a company after being working in your own business for four years? The the adjustment like it was refreshing. 
it was it was nice now having one thing to really focus on rather than trying to put fires out everywhere. Um, it was also coupled with the, the day I moved to London was the day I actually met my now wife. So I've got lovely memories of that experience of leaving uh, the family home, actually getting my own place in London for the first time, starting a real job, meeting my, my now wife. Um, so it was a really good experience. Um, like with the entrepreneur piece, I had those moments of, I remember when I first started, I was sitting there like, what the hell am I doing? Like I've never enterprise sold before except for my own business. And uh, it's a fairly, so they've gone through series A, a well-established, you know, on their way to being you know, doing great things. And I remember sitting there thinking like, I'm a, this is new. I got to learn quickly, but um, nah, I loved every second of it. It was really, really great. Selling that, how was it different to selling the, the tag thing beforehand? Um, well, we, we were doing sort of big enterprise deals with the largest CPG, FMCG companies in the world with a higher standard. Like when I'm selling, when it's just me and a few of the, uh, the entrepreneurs behind me, that I don't know what the standard is, you know. I'm kind of making it up as I go along. I look back at the proposals I wrote when I was trying to sell to insurance companies versus what I was taught to do as proper enterprise. And it's the kind of, ah, crap, I, I wasn't doing that right. So, yeah, no, it was a period of just having to adjust to how it's done properly. Um, if that makes sense. And, and, and talk to me about that when you say it properly. <clears throat> what are the highlights of properly for you that you discovered? I think just doing the proper legwork, like account mapping properly, understand who is where in your organization, who do you need to lobby, who's going to be signing this off, really understanding what are their actual pain points, like deeper than just a surface level, and how is this actually going to help solve those, and articulating that in a way verbal and written to compel other people in the organization to action. Um, that in my mind is, is the beginnings of doing it properly. Whereas what I was doing was more just sending an email, uh, making a phone call saying, could we meet? And I, I'd meet with really junior people thinking that this is the person who's gonna sign everything off. And I put so much weight on it, not understanding that there is, there's other things at play here. There's hierarchy, there's decision-making happening at different levels. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean when learning to do it properly. Mm. <clears throat> because when you talked about the selling to the insurance companies with price tag, was not price tag, what was it called? Tag back. Tag back, sorry. Um, the way you framed it was that you were going into them saying, look, for every 10 you're having to pay out on, with our product you'll pay out on maybe half that. That to me sounds like a, a really neat common sense approach. I think what you're, you're telling me is that it wasn't an understanding of why people buy the, the pain point, more about how to navigate your way through a complex decision-making process was the big awakening for you in the enterprise. Is that fair? Exactly, yeah. I mean, our, with, with Tagback, with our first sort of major enterprise deal, I remember I got through, I mean, I didn't know this at the time, I wasn't thinking like this at the time, but I connected with the decision maker, the, the senior and most person in the organization very early on. I think he and I had a really good affinity and I think he probably saw a little bit of like young entrepreneur making all the mistakes. Let's see if we can help him. Um, and I, I probably was able to trade a little bit on that. Um, in doing so, I remember a, a classic entrepreneur mistake. I gave that company exclusivity. Um, you know, which completely locked me in, in, from other opportunities. Hence why it took us a few years to really get things going. So we had to let that exclusivity expire to actually start having more conversations. Um, but yeah, I, I was a bit lucky on that first one. I met the right person very quickly who was able to really grab it by the horns and help push it through. Um, yeah. How has your experience then with that business 
helped you with Brand Ambassador? Uh, that's a good question. As in my experience with Tagback or my experience yes, dealing with yeah, that? Tagback specifically. I think my experience with Tagback, I wouldn't necessarily directly impacted Brand Ambassador, but what it did is it put me, or it helped me skip a few levels. Um, I, I, if you look at the traditional SaaS sales route, you've got sort of SDR, junior AE, enterprise AE, head of sales, that kind of, sort of more traditional path. And Tagback enabled me to jump a few levels. I went straight into enterprise AE and learned quickly. Um, I then uh, I then left that IoT company and joined a startup which Rakuten had just acquired. So I joined that business and I think I was like the third salesperson. I was a VP and, and two and me and another guy. Um, and it seemed like a really great idea at the time. Well, this is an opportunity to do something a bit different. It's a, a big organization. You just acquired a startup. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some really interesting interaction there. Um, and I remember after six months, I found myself the only one left in the sales team. My, my VP had lost his job. The other guys around me had lost their jobs. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, what the hell have I just done? I've just I had a really good thing going. And, you know, I've, 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 made, I've messed up here. I remember chatting to my wife about it, thinking I may need to make a new plan because these things aren't working as this company expected them to. And I remember, um, I remember I, I found a book, and I think a lot of a lot of SaaS salespeople will know Mark Roberge. Uh, it was a sales acceleration formula, and Aaron Ross, uh, predictable sales. And I read those two books, and it was kind of like just a light bulb moment for me on what they weren't doing right and what needed to happen. And I remember I um, I spent a bit of time. Well, I had Aaron Ross on the podcast, by the way. Did you? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to meet him because I mean, his book literally did change the way I looked at mm. things. Gave open doors. And this is where the whole where brand ambassadors or where the relevance comes from. So I put these slides together around like, look, where are we now as a business? We're not selling anything mainly because we're not generating pipeline. There's nothing sustainable. It's all just ad hoc. And I'm basically following these two guys' formula. Put this playbook together. And I remember grabbing our CEO at the time, and I was like, look, I just want half an hour of your day, please. Um, and remember, I'm some sort of lowly AE. You know, he's a busy guy with a lot of fires going on. I remember, he, to his credit, he gave me the time of day, and I pitched in my slides and said, "Look, I want the gig of head of sales, and I want to execute this plan." And I remember he walked out of the room and he looked at me and he went, "How the bloody hell did you do that?" And um, he gave me the opportunity to actually be head of sales and build my own thing from the ground up. And I remember, I remember my first hires. I remember my first SDRs. I remember again in that environment of like, "What am I doing here?" Like learning as you're doing it, and as just a fantastic opportunity for me to step into more sales and commercial leadership. And that's what moved me on this path towards uh, where I'm now at Brand Ambassador and what we've done over the last three three years. I can hear people listening to you right now going, how did you do it? Please tell us, how did you do it? <laughs> buy the book, buy the book. I think just copy it. But no, I think, I know, I think for me, it's, all, it's about sustainable pipeline, which is what Aaron Ross was preaching in the book. You've got to find a way to sustainably open up opportunities um, and if you pay attention to all the key variables, like how much are we creating, how much is converting through to pipeline and how much is converting to new business and in what time frame, what's our average order value and what are the levers that influence all those key metrics. That's it. That's, that's, that's all it boils down to. Um, there are obviously super nuances within those, like, uh, you know, increasing efficiency and optimizing around conversion rates and the right content at the right time and mapping accounts. But the fundamentals to me are applicable to, to most, you know, most businesses selling something. You make it sound like a machine. It's, it is a machine. That's exactly what it is. It's a, it is a machine. It's a complete machine. So where does the human dynamic come into it then? What part does that play? It's, uh, that's a great question. I think, um, so for me, 
there's this debate is like is sales a science or an art? It's it's both, right? There's a there's a definite science towards selling. Uh, it's been documented. There's psychological science to it. There's the machine science of can we generate enough and convert enough? But I think the skill element or the art element comes in those interactions. You know, it's all well and good me reading a book, knowing there are certain questions I need to ask. I need to understand who are the important people in the room here. How do I read those? The book can tell me theory, but it's the application of that theory where the art and the skill comes in, um, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, that. Tell me about then your own experience with Brand Ambassador where perhaps the wheels come off the wagon a little bit in terms of where those two worlds meet. Yeah, so, I mean, we've been, we've been pretty fortunate in Brand Ambassador. The wheels haven't come off the wagon too many times yet. Um, I, I met the founders in, uh, I think it was September 2018. Uh, and these, these two guys are super inspiring entrepreneurs. They're incredible. They, but they're, they were from a fashion background. They built, they built a fashion label, super successful. Um, and they hadn't really had any experience taking SaaS businesses and scaling them, which I, generated a bit of experience doing this now. So the synergy was great. And um, I joined them and there's about 12 people in the business and applied the same kind of theory. Like, you know, we've got this thing, this it's called Brand Ambassador. Um, for those who don't know, the kind of the, the two line value prop is we help any consumer brand in the world turn their customers and fans into an army of super fans. And we call them ambassadors. Um, it's it's similar-ish to influencer marketing. Um, only influencer marketing is somebody who's curating a following and their job is to sell access to that following to other brands in what is essentially an ad. It's, a, it's an ad transactional driven environment. We're looking for people who are just genuinely passionate about a brand and they tend to be people who are shopping it, buying it, following it online. Every brand has them. Um, and our mission is to help brands leverage that good energy and turn it into these huge communities of ambassadors. And to do that, you need software. You can't do it in email and spreadsheet, or you can try, but it'll, it'll break very quickly. So we, this is what we built. We built this thing. So on day one, we want to sit down and work out who, who needs this? Like, who can we actually help with this? And we need to be deliberate about that. And you, you build your ICP or ideal customer profile. We're going to build a really specific view on who and who can we help and, and what's the value proposition for how we can help them. How do we articulate that? So we got this thing, you've got your ICP, you've got your value proposition. Those are your fundamentals to begin going to market. Now, the challenge we have is um, if you imagine an X and Y axis, our reputation is low, our awareness is low. No one's out there looking for brand ambassador. It's brand new. And not a lot of people are out there looking for ambassador marketing because it's conceptually, it's relatively nascent back then as well. So we had to be deliberate. And this is why we opted for the more outbound approach. We, uh, we hired um, some relatively junior people looking to get into sales and armed them with some good tools like Sales Loft and uh, a bunch of other bits and bobs to help us be efficient. We built our target account list and we said, let's go and deliver our value prop to these people and see how it lands. So that was the beginning. That was our, that's how we started. And um, that is what led to sustainable generation of opportunities at least and helped us refine the value proposition. And again, looking at those key variables of pipeline creation and conversion rates and AOV and whatnot, we've been able to build this machine. Um, and it's just, it's scaled from there. We've gone from, we hired two SDRs initially with three AEs. We're now 21 SDRs looking to get to around 30 ASAP. Um, we've got six account execs. So we're quite SDR heavy. We're pipeline heavy. Um, my, 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 the way I view it is, 
Generating pipeline is a specific skill set. There is a skill set to generating pipeline, and that skill set is different, in my opinion, to actually interacting and running a sales process. Now, there's definite crossover, but I want a group of people who are solely responsible for this one, and a group of people who are solely responsible for this one. So uh, my AEs, they get, fed, they get fed opportunity. They live in a golden land where they get literally, here are your leads, this guy would like a demo, please. And their role is to go in there and the skill element, deliver our value proposition and run the deal. Um, in, your question was specifically to wheels falling off. Um, in, in the sense, Matt, of you've got a machine and you can document it and it works perfectly. And you got then the human element, which you can never document humans. We're all different. And then when you bring those two together, uh, there's... The, let me rephrase it because I think the wheels, I, I, I don't mean it that way. I mean, there's friction points that it doesn't always run smoothly. And I'm wondering if you notice any patterns as to where in that process that you have to kind of apply more attention to, to make it run as smoothly as the machine should run. run. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think one of the big ones is, is, uh, is hiring, um, especially for sales roles. I think it's, I think it's very easy for somebody to, in an interview environment, portray the attributes that correlate with success. Like you can be confident, be a good storyteller, but really until the rubber hits the road, it's very hard to tell, especially in an SDR role where what's impossible to simulate is that environment of, and I always say during interview process, like there'll be days when you come into the office and it's cold and wet outside and you're way behind your target and you need to graft. I need to make those extra calls. You need to go the extra mile. And that's really hard to test for. So in terms of wheels falling off, we've had we've had scenarios where people come into our organization with the best intentions and they've just not been able to work out because it's only really when things happen that you see that that wasn't a good fit. Mm. Um, I, I will hold my hands up as well, except within that, within that piece, there is a responsibility to ensure there's proper training, adequate onboarding. And in a startup world, it can be quite scrappy. You tend to build those bits as you're going. So I'm sure there have been some people who've come into our organization who look and go, well, look, if Matt had just provided me a bit more of that, it would have worked. Yeah, and maybe so. So we've, we've put a big effort in the last 12 months to, to really upgrade that side. I think it, 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 when, when I was looking at it through the lens of wheels coming off, there was, there's one, there's, there's a moment in our evolution where I go, look, that, that was bad. That's where things start going a little bit wrong. And uh, it's entirely my fault. I'll own it. But looking at that, looking at that funnel metric, that, that idea of generating pipeline close rates, conversions, AOVs, time to, uh, to close the deal, that's the that's the foundations of the machine. If you take your eye off one of those foundations and don't fixate back on it for a period of time, it can go wrong very quickly. And um, towards the end of last year, um, we had this, this erosion of the volume of pipeline we're creating. The, the number of opportunities was just dropping every single month. And my focus was on more like, okay, we've got less raw material, but let's, let's increase our conversion rates. Let's really try and rather than close 20%, let's close 40%, which is, which is great. We need to do that. But um, by far, looking back, the biggest influence was we just we weren't focusing on top of pipeline enough and really picked it up in, in Q4 last year where we saw, hey, things just aren't moving in the right direction and sat down as a commercial team with marketing, the SDRs, the AEs, our founders, and said, look, let's move some chess pieces to to get this back on track. And it's, it doesn't happen overnight. We had arguably our worst pipeline months were November and December, which is not that long ago. Um, but we came back in the new year with this, with this, a lot of things in place that needed to be in place. And you know, 
credit to the team. They've absolutely smashed it. Our, we've just had our record pipeline generation month um, since I've been here and you know, all time. We just absolutely killed it. And, and now the onus is on, is on the account exec team, myself, to make sure we do that pipeline justice and see it through to start helping more and more brands. And it, the, the wheels come off when you lose sight of what are the things that I need to be looking at on a daily, weekly, monthly basis but not just looking at them and going, oh, well, that one's moving up or down, but really understanding why I'm responding to it. That's, I think that's when the wheels can come off. Cool. Who inspires you? Um, you know, I almost went, there are lots of people out there who I would consider inspiring and I almost went down to the classics of like, you know, you look at great entrepreneurs um, that jump to mind. They're inspiring, but who inspires me? Um, Well, you've got you've got me there, mate. Who inspires me? So, firstly, I, I wanted to avoid doing the really um, weird thing of saying Mark, Mark, our current CEO and founders inspire me. Thomas Nolly, I find them inspiring. I find our management team inspiring. Um, you know, we've got a really really great team. Uh, not just the man. Like now, this is an Oscar speech. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. I'd like to thank. I'd like to thank. <laughs> no, but, I mean you go to. I mean, there are moments. There are different phases in your life where different people inspire you. Um, mm. As a kid, I was massive into football. There are lots of football figures and managers who I found inspiring. When I was going through that phase in my twenties, looking at starting, growing businesses, there are people like Richard Branson you find inspiring. I think where I'm, where I'm at now is. Uh, it's, it's more, it's less the people who are like celebrity types. It's more the people I'm interacting on a daily basis that I'm finding inspiring. Like when we're solving problems as a team, like when I'm hearing someone, it could be a brand new SDR say to me, I've got an idea. Like one of, one of them came to me the other day, he's been here for three weeks and he came to me with an idea on how we can improve a, a piece of our engine and become more efficient. I won't go into all the detail, but it's just sort of super inspiring. So I think when you meet people who have really high give a crap levels and want to hold a high standard, that's yeah. a weird, washy answer, but I find that inspiring. Yeah. So what footballer, past or present, would you most like to have dinner with? Uh, oh, that's weird. Uh, the first one I'd say is Paul Merson. Um, I'm a massive Aston Villa fan. And I remember uh, when we signed Merson, uh, I, was, I was absolutely buzzed as a kid. I, was, I went to season ticket with my dad for like 15 years. I used to love watching him play. Um, he just like tipped the ball over the top onto the striker and I used, to, I used to love it. He was the only player I ever had Merson on the back of my shirt. I was like an 11 year old kid. And I'd like to, I don't know, I'd like to have dinner and say, hey, Paul, thanks man. Like you gave me some really great memories as a kid. That was so fun. Same question then for what public figure you'd most likely have dinner with, past or present? Um, maybe someone like Obama. I think his, his leadership, um, this, the, the, he, the way he conducts himself as a leader, um, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know enough about him as an, as a, on a personal individual level, but as somebody who from the outside is looking how a leader presents, how they, uh, how they should conduct themselves in public, I find him inspiring. I'd love to chat to him a bit more. Um, yeah, I'm trying to avoid yeah. the cliches. Is like, there a particular question you'd like to ask him? Obama. Ask him. Hmm? Obama, yeah. Um, question I'd like to ask him. I'd love to learn more around uh, his adversity and how he is, he's overcome it. I'd love to learn if there are any mantras or tactics or techniques he uses on a more day-to-day -day 
sort of being a leader and, and conducting yourself and holding composure, uh, you know, public speaking, like any tips, tricks, or like, you know, how do you stay so cool and calm uh, and inspire other people with just the words that are coming out of your mouth? Um, and and what, what's he leaning on internally as those frameworks to do that? Yeah, I think that's probably what I'd want yeah. to dig into. It's funny, these guys and gals know they're very good at winning over. I guess that's why they're in those positions. I remember when he came to Ireland, there, <laughs> there is, um, because the first thing when somebody becomes president of the United States, there'll be within minutes to be somebody in Ireland who will have claimed them as, I'm not kidding you. So Obama has an Irish ancestor. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, as Muhammad Ali and, oh, well, sorry, he's not a president, but I remember him coming to Ireland and who, you know, almost all of them, I don't think Trump did. He had Scottish ancestry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but there is a service station along one of our motorways and it's called the Barack Obama Plaza. <laughs> not, I'm not kidding you. But, uh, you know, his catchphrase, yes, we can. When he came over here, he didn't use it. He used the Gaelic version of it. He, when he spoke, he said it's featherling. And like, just Genius. Yeah, absolutely. It's so simple. Like, all he had to do is, you know, and write it out phonetically. And just makes, that's what people remember. Yeah. Made the effort to think, to think about who are these people. Yeah, those are the subtleties, aren't they? That's incredible. Yeah. And your, your queen did the exact same when she was over here, maybe, well, must be 10 years ago. She did the same in a speech as well. Just, just a few words. Yeah. And, and, and it does matter. I think, you know, as, as humans, we, uh, that, that sense of identity is, 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 is a, it's almost like a craving in people, what they're going to latch onto. Who are we? What do I identify with? But, uh, anyway, that's probably <laughs> a topic for another day. Um, Talk to me a little bit then about the kind of things outside of work that motivate you, that give you a great kind of buzz to fire you up. Yeah, it's again, it's going to sound a bit cliche, but it's definitely definitely my family. Um, I've got uh, I'm, I'm 35. I've got three children, and um, yeah, that responsibility, that feeling of responsibility of being like, there's lives that now matter. It's just, let me rephrase that. There's lives that are dependent on my actions and, and what I'm doing. Uh, and I think that's empowering. It's, um, I think it's a responsibility which you need to take on and face and accept. And I think going from that period, so we've, we've been married for, for six years and it's, life has happened quite quick to us. Like we got married, I think we were together for almost a year and we got married. Life has happened very quickly. My wife had a daughter from a previous relationship, so I'm a stepdad to, to, a, to a beautiful nine-year-old girl. And life's been... We've had to be very deliberate. Uh, I think from like what inspires me is like the responsibility and taking that position as I need to provide for this family. I need to set an example. I've got two boys as well. I need to show them what it means um, to be an adult, to be a man, to to take responsibility. And I find that that's probably what drives me at the moment. Really, that sense of um, I'm head of a house almost. If that's a, if if that makes any sense, I think. Mm. Yeah, I draw a lot of inspiration on a daily basis from that outside of work. Um, I'm is there a pressure that comes with that? Oh, 100%. Um, not pressure in the sense of that overbearing like uh, pressure, but more a, just a reminder. It's just a constant reminder that your actions matter. 
you know, um, mm. getting out of bed today and representing yourself well, um, professionally and in, uh, privately, it matters. You know, um, I, I aspire for, for my children to have the things they want. And I'd love to, to, to have a house where when they're teenagers, we have the space for everything and um, you know, take them on holidays and pay for the, the, the different school classes and ensure they grow up looking back having had a really great childhood. And that with that comes that little responsibility, that reminder of, you know, you need to keep driving, you need to keep pushing forward. It's less so now about when I was when I was younger, it was more about there are things that I want. I want to make money because I want to do stuff. I want to make money because I want to go traveling. Or um, when we first got married, I wanted to make money to go and uh, do the flying as recreational thing. You know, you can mm. you can pay to, for your private license and you can pay to go out on a weekly basis or weekends rather and fly. And that's, that's just not as acute anymore. That desire is, has taken back seat to something else and often joke that, uh, oh, joke, I, I dream that I'll come back at one, you know, at some point in my life, that'll be back, you know, when the kids are a bit older at university and the wife and I can spend our time flying together and, you know, that'll be part of my life. But at the moment, those desires have taken sort of back seat, those personal things that I want, um, they're, they're not as noisy. Uh, they've been replaced a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking because I I got three kids myself as well, and it's like <laughs> I I wanted to be a pilot, and then you guys came along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 uh, yeah, one way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that 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 hundred grand. Uh, yeah, that was you. <laughs> yeah. and that other hundred grand. <laughs> no, I and, and you said that I mentioned that taking a back seat. I don't know. Certainly for me, it doesn't feel that way. It feels, it does feel like it's put on the back burner a little bit. Um, but it's not, it's not a it, it, family to me anyway, are a greater priority. Like it's not a, it's an easy one. It's an easy sacrifice. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember David Sander actually, and I never met the man, but I remember listening to a, a recording of his and he was talking about sacrifice. And he said, it's not a sacrifice if you, have, you know, one of your kids are, are, are drowning mm. and you jump in and save them, but you drown in the process. That's not a sacrifice because you're giving your life for something that to you is more important. Mm. But if it was a stranger and you jumped in and you drowned, that's a sacrifice because clearly their life is not as important to you. Yeah. I think... That's that's only something you can really really feel when you've got kids, because they're probably the only thing that you 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 would do that for. Totally, I think when I when I say it's taking a back seat, it's it's not a conscious decision. It's just mm. it, you, your priorities have changed to the point where it doesn't matter as much. It's not like saying, mm. "Oh, I have to give that up for this." Like you willingly do it. It's just it's just weird how the priorities shift when that. When, when that happens to you, but, um, yeah. Mm. Mm. And it doesn't diminish over, so you, sh you should have more kids. <laughs> I don't know that, Paul. Um, yeah, I think we're only 35. But may maybe one day, I think doggy, the dog is the one we're discussing at the moment. Do we, do we go and get a dog? Um, the kids would love it, but um, you know, we're busy and, uh, and whatnot. But yeah, couldn't imagine having more kids just yet. Yeah, no dogs. I have to say, we we've got two of them, and they do fill, uh, they they do fill a space, a strange kind of. It's just it's it's a weird one, 
But um, anybody's ever had a did you, have you ever had a dog? Yeah, we we both grew up with dogs. All our lives okay. we grew up with them. So it's a matter of it's a matter of um, of when, not if. It's just yeah, a timing's yeah. issue. We're thinking yeah. when maybe all the kids are at school. Maybe that's a better time when we've got a bit yeah. more time to look after the dog. But um, okay. yeah, let's let's come back uh, to work a little bit. I wanted to talk about because clearly you you're from the comments I read about you on LinkedIn. You're quite successful in a sales role. It seem, you seem to adapt to that quite well. And now you're in a leadership role. You've got people who you've now got to inspire and motivate and be accountable to and for. What was that journey like? Where were the bumps in the road for you personally, not just in terms of what you had to learn and discover in yourself to be successful at that? Um, the bumps in the road. I think when you're doing it for the first time, you're doing it for the first time. Like there's that old phrase, if you don't know what you don't know, you, you, you discover mm. what you don't know. And then you've got to pivot quickly to try and plug that gap. And in a professional environment, that can that can be quite uh, unsettling. You know, like that feeling of imposter syndrome of like, <laughs> should I be doing this? Um, do other people realize that I don't actually know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. and I'm learning as I go. Um, that's probably the hardest bit. I think in, in almost everything I've done, that's been present from starting my own business to trying to become an enterprise sales, trying to be ahead of sales. And that can that can catch you out. That can be tricky. I remember there'll be days when I come back from work and my wife would say, look, you're like a zombie. I'd be sitting on the sofa, just mentally drained, trying to look at things in your head from every angle. Like, what's that person thinking? Can that person see that? I'm not quite sure how to work that bit. So on a personal level, that was probably how, that was probably the most the hardest part. Um, I think where I am now, I feel the most capable I've ever felt. Like I've got, I've been doing this for three years. I feel like I see the whole moving parts, but that's new for me because I've always stretched so much. And I don't regret that. And my, my advice to other people would be stretch, you know, it's, it's step into those uncomfortable places. And, you know, it's, it's, everyone knows it's that in that stretch that when you grow, it's stepping out and doing uncomfortable things that when you grow. And I think my advice to people would be embrace that. Um, it's not as bad as you think in your head. Uh, everyone to a certain level is internally thinking, shit, do other people realize I've not done this before? Um, and I think it's, uh, everyone's there. Everyone's, everyone's pushing and stretching. You need to take those steps. So yeah, I think for me, are that's you then more, are you more of a, uh, jump into the deep end and you'll figure it out versus baby steps in the shallow end first and gradually get there. I'm definitely closer to the former. I'm probably a bit more like, let's just have a quick look how deep the water is. Um, let's just have a little think, what's the worst case if I jump in and I can't swim? Um, and if the worst case isn't isn't that bad, let's give it a go. Let's see what happens when we jump in. Um, yeah, I think one of the best ways or an antidote to anxiety is to just take that step back and go, what's what's the worst case scenario here? Let's catastrophize this. Okay, you might get found out and lose your job. There, there are other jobs. Um, so yeah, just think, thinking through like, what's the worst case, what's my planning case of it, and uh, but then also weighing that against the to the potential. Like yeah, it could go horribly wrong, but at the same time, it could be an enormous step forward for me in my career where I put myself in positions and learn quickly and and progress. So for me, that that risk reward is always a, a favourable thing to do. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations and stretch. If you were minister for education or secretary for education. What subject would you make mandatory for on A levels, or or for, and you guys don't have to go on to do A levels, I guess, but you know what I'm saying on, on the curriculum that there's a mandatory subject. 
certainly for uh, GCSEs or whatever they call them. I, I would I'd probably say better financial management, understanding of financial processes, um, teaching compound interest, investment, how mortgages work, um, money management, um, how how businesses are structured and operate, share structures, um, how all that stuff works. I feel like I had to learn doing, well, in my 20s, uh, I think the old compound interest thing. I, I, why did someone not sit me down when I was 13 and explain compound interest like I'd be so much better off right now, and I feel like this, from my experience of education, there wasn't enough focus on on those more practical and really important elements of growing up and taking responsibility and taking a job and a mortgage and a family and financial responsibility. So yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I've always thought I'd love to at some point in my life do something that helps there, like a bit of entrepreneurial thinking to help there. Um, like maybe how could you gamify? investment for young kids or something like say that you've got this game you've got a thousand bucks each and it's the monopoly the monopoly exactly yeah, only a, i used to cheat at monopoly i think uh, a few a few on the hand that's a lesson in life i guess somebody trying to cheat you out of something so true yeah that's where my head jumps to when you ask that question was i think some financial management yeah interesting interesting and uh What's what's for the future, Matt? When you kind of think past Brand Ambassador down, you're kind of semi-retired. What would you like to do? I would. I think flying is definitely one of them. Uh, I would love to put our family in a place where we have a we call it our family home. We don't need to think about upsizing anytime soon. We can host as many people as we want. The kids have got somewhere to come back to when they're at university. Like sort of have enough space in the universe for our little patch. Uh, I'd love to have that. I'd love to be in a place where, um, and I mean, everyone listening will attest to this, but a place where um, money's no longer, it's one less thing to worry about. Um, I don't aspire to be mega rich, like one of those tech billionaires, but I'd love to have enough where I just, it's one less thing to worry about and then freeze up that time to do more passion projects. I'd love to start a business again. Um, I'd love to get back into the flying. Um, the immediate focus is on the journey and the job of Brand Ambassador. We want to build something great. So that's that's really what I'm looking at. Um, but outside of that, so it's more there's pieces of just being comfortable as a family and having the time and the resource to do to do the things we want to do. If, if that makes sense. Mm, nice. No, no, it does. I, I I've always fancied flying myself. I never had your passion for it, but I did get a lesson once for as a Christmas present, and uh, where they pretend you're in control of the yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I really, really enjoyed that, and I, I, always rem- I always thought about it. I remember when we got back down on the ground, and I said it because I was at that stage, I was buzzing, and I said, "What would be involved in in terms of lessons?" And he said, "Something like a minimum forty hours." He said, yeah. "Most people kind of sixty hours plus." And I said, "I, I, th- I found that strange because," and I told him because my father-in-law had done some lessons. And he had been taking, he, like on his fifth or sixth lesson, he was allowed to take off and land. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised it takes so long, given that you're taking off and landing after five or six lessons or hours. And uh, I'll never forget what he said to me. He says, boy, he says, that's only the beginning. He says, once you can do that, we take you 10,000 feet in the air, cut, you the, cut the engine and hand you the stick. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and then you can fly. And... Uh, I think sales is a little bit like that. I've often thought that in terms of how we train people, we we, we just take them to take off and landing. Mm. Or, or even worse than that, we 
with them in the passenger seat, we fly the plane and show you, here's how I do it. And you take off and land and then without them ever, you know, it's like now, now off you go, like without ever the, that path mm. um, and without ever taking them to those dark places where you're testing their resilience and their grit and their determination. Um, I'd love to see that more. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It's not, it's not easy, though, in terms of like one of the ways I've, I've got a, an SDR who's making the transition now to AE. Um, and I've tried it a few times in the past and uh, a few of them just have it's, it's failed. And I look back and I go, why did that fail? And it's, it's down to exactly what you're saying. It's down to, you know, you show them this is how you take off and this is how you circle around and this is how you land again. Go do it. And it's just it's just not enough. It's just doing a disservice to yeah, everybody. No. So with and, this, and as you said at the beginning, sorry, Matt, go ahead. Go, go, go on. I was going to say, you, you said this at the beginning that, you know, not everybody who's suited, some people are really good at SDRs because it's a very short cycle. It's, it's very task oriented. It's like, you know, where, who do I call next? And you have a conversation and you either move it on or move it off or put it in a nurturing pile. But with AEs, they've got to develop an opportunity and it takes longer. So it requires a different, not just even a different skill set, but a a different traits that you gotta you gotta enjoy more that systematic structured approach. Um, it it is a different skill set, and it doesn't in, in the same way as it doesn't always follow that a good rep makes a good manager. Yeah, it doesn't always follow that a good SDR makes a good AE, and vice versa. I've seen people who are really good say at account management, but not in the hunting role, and and vice versa, and. Yeah, I don't know that we spend enough time understanding that in, in refs. And, be, and not so just, but also being okay with it. I, and, and the opposite is true as well. I remember I worked, when I worked in England, I was a pre-sales guy, right? And I remember talking to my boss and saying, I wanted to be in sales. And he said, oh, that's great. He says, but first of all, we, we need to see that you're a really good pre-sales person first. Yeah. And that didn't make any sense to me. Because you could be a brilliant pre-sales person and lousy in sales and vice versa. And rather than kind of say, okay, well, what are the traits needed to be successful in sales? Do you have those? Let's be as objective as we can about it. And if you do, we can talk about that transition. And if you don't, then at least we know why. But I, I think we do a lot of that. We, it's, I think the science, they call it the halo effect, that if you're good at one thing, we automatically assume you're good at something else. And uh, I don't know that's true. I think I think that's so true, and um, I definitely fall foul of that. Right, one of for my SDRs, one of the I, I tell I want the top performers to be the ones that who who are next in line for the transition, just because as a motivational piece, like they they drive because they all want to put themselves in that top piece. So I'm getting more pipeline and more push because they want the opportunity to progress. But really, really, it has to be on on merit. Do you have? The, the, the attributes that correlate with success as an AE, and they are the same as an SDR. You could be an absolute mm. weapon on the phone. It doesn't help mm. you close a deal. Um, so I, I will sometimes use in my team is to say, hey, look, put yourself up there, and then we can talk about mm. next level um, as a motivational piece. But I think in, in, in actual truth, it has to be down to merit, and your, do you have the attributes that correlate with success? Yeah, for sure. Matt, we're just up on time. Two very quick questions before I let you go. House is burning down, family are safe, your phone is safe, obviously, right? That's safe. 
Uh, but you have time to go run back into the house and grab one item. What would it be and why? I mean, the, class, the classic is photo albums, but they're all on, online now. Um, if the family are all saved, I don't... I, <laughs> I don't know, Paul. I don't, I don't, there's not like one possession that jumps at me is thinking that I've got to go grab that. That's the most common answer, by the way. Really? Oh, yeah, because, again, you said photographs are... There's very little nowadays that you can't replace. Yeah, exactly, the yeah. The thing tend to be maybe if you had something from a deceased relative that couldn't be replaced, for example. But, you know, um, the first thing that jumped to mind, and I was hesitant to say, because it sounds a little bit like, come on, but like, it, 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 for me, it has to be something sentimental because things can be replaced. My laptop, my computer, this can all be replaced. The things which couldn't be replaced are, you know, our kids have those like, like snuggly blanket stuff. Like obviously our kids have them. They can't sleep at night without them. I would go and grab, um, uh, it's called, uh, our oldest daughter's was called Dedda. It's a little rabbit. Uh, my, my middle son's, his is called Fodder Waddle and it's a little doggy. Uh, and then Noah's is called Ellie. I would, I would grab those three things. Um, just purely because of that age, you know, with the, with the trauma of the house burning down, um, that would help my wife and I because they're going to sleep better at night and it, it gives them their, the thing which can't be replaced, which is sentimental to them. Um, yeah. I love it. I love it. You thought of them. I like, you know, that's, 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 says a lot, Matt. It really does. Um, final question then. When your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title to be? Oh, wow. Crikey, that's a title. <laughs> that's big. I have the title, by the way, already for you, but but I'd love to hear yours. I, I think um, I'm, I started with what do I want my life to be remembered by, and then like work yeah. back from that to build a title. And I think I don't think I think any human being, if you can leave this planet saying you actually made a positive difference, um, yeah. regardless of the sphere, like as long as wherever you are, you've made a positive difference, that's got to be a good thing. So maybe like how to make a difference, something something along those lines. Yeah. That's along with my, mine was, uh, I, I, I saved Fuddle Waddle. <laughs> I, I rescued Fuddle Waddle. That was yes. <laughs> the hero of Fuddle Waddle, yeah. Uh, I, lo I love that name. <laughs> that will stick with me, Fuddle Waddle. <laughs> got no idea where they come from, but I came back from, my wife was like, yeah, it's called Fuddle Waddle. So, fantastic. Matt Harris, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.